Well, as your musicians are being seated, I invite you to take out a copy of the bulletin. Hopefully you got one in the, uh, the outline in the bulletin. Uh, we're in week number seven of our nine-week series in the book of Proverbs through uh, this summer. Up until this point, our messages have been largely what we would call exegetical. And by that, I mean we take a long section or passage, sometimes even an entire chapter, from the book of Proverbs, and we explain, we interpret, and we apply what that larger passage has to say. Now, this week's going to be a little bit different in that I'm going to be bringing together many selected Proverbs uh, from the book of Proverbs. They're going to serve as the foundation for this message that I've entitled, Wisdom with Your Words. Now, this is a bit of a large task, and let me tell you why. If you'll remember back in the opening message of this series, I kind of explained a little bit about the division or the structure of the book of Proverbs. The first nine chapters are kind of introductory to the theme of wisdom and all those ways in which we need to understand the need and the pursuit of wisdom. The last two chapters of Proverbs were not actually written by Solomon, but by two other kings or, or royal individuals. But the chapters 10 through 29... They are seemingly a, a hodgepodge or random collection of proverbs that are put together. And the reason I say this is somewhat of a dis- difficult task for me this morning is because in chapters 10 through 29, roughly 30% of those proverbs have to do with the way we use our mouth, how we talk, wisdom with our words. So it's a little bit difficult to take all that information and all those proverbs and kind of distill it down into one single message to give us some insight and some application, but hopefully that's exactly what's going to happen. One thing I hope we will come away from this time in the Word together with is the basic understanding of this truth. Look at this next slide. Words are powerful. Do you know that? (laughs) Words are incredibly powerful. What we say, and as disciples of Jesus, we need to understand this particularly, that the words we say what we say and how we say it, sometimes even what we do not say, those things are powerful and they communicate greatly. And therefore, we should give great care to the way in which we use our words because they are powerful. For instance, let me give you one example. Here's a Japanese word some of you may have heard before. It's the word mokusatsu. Has anybody heard this Japanese word before? Mokusatsu? Let me tell you the importance and the relevance of this word to world history. Mokusatsu, again, a Japanese word, it means roughly translated, and again, translating from one language to another can always be difficult, especially with cultural nuances. But here's what the word roughly translated means, to take notice of, to treat with contempt, ignore, or remain in a wise and masterly inactivity. You can see there's a broad range of meaning based upon context. It it can mean I'm noticing what you've done, or I can treat what you've done with contempt, or I can ignore what you've done, or I am remaining in a wise and masterly inactivity regarding you, what you've said, or what you've done. So this is where this word came into significance in history. The end of World War II in July of 1945, at the throes of the war, the Allied leaders sent a stiffly worded message and declaration to the Japanese premier, Kantaro Suzuki. And the terms of the surrender were absolute surrender. And they let him know, if you do not surrender, 
Here is a warning. Any negative response to our call for surrender will invite, quote, prompt and utter destruction. Well, the Japanese reporters came to Premier Suzuki and they asked him what his response to the call for surrender was. And here's what he said. One word, mokusatsu. Mokusatsu. So what did he mean? Did he mean I'm ignoring the call for surrender? I'm treating with contempt the call for surrender? I'm having a wise and masterly, you know, inactivity? Well, the world may never know exactly what he meant, but because of his ambiguous answer and only a one-word answer, the translators told the Allied forces the best possible meaning. They were outraged. And so 10 days later, the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. A few days after that, another one dropped on Nagasaki. Because of Premier Suzuki's ambiguous response, the course of human history changed forever. We entered the nuclear Cold War era, but beyond that, around 200,000 human lives were lost. Language is important. Words are powerful. Now, since we'll be looking at multiple proverbs throughout uh, the message to kind of support the points of my message, instead of reading one passage up front, I want us to read uh, several proverbs in succession. I'm going to read them out loud. They're on your outline, or they'll also be on the screen. This is the Word of God. Listen to it. Proverbs 15.1, a soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man, and a word in season how good it is. Proverbs 16.24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 12.18, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And finally, Proverbs 11.11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Words are powerful. And the words we choose to use in the relationships we have in our lives can bring healing or they can bring destruction. They can lift people up or they can tear people down. Now, there are three main categories I want us to consider from all these collected Proverbs and more as we consider using wisdom with our words. The first thing is this. Number one, to use our words wisely, we must have ears that are directed. We must have ears that are directed. Now, that may seem a bit odd that I would start my first point on using your words, using your mouth, by talking about our ears. But the reason I'm doing that is because that's exactly what the Proverbs say again and again. In fact, this instruction in chapter 18, verse 13 is just that. If anyone gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. Why is it important to listen before we speak? Well, you've probably heard the old adage, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as you talk, right? Now, here's another way to look at it. 
God's also given us two eyes, which also can't speak. They also are only for observation. So God's given us four instruments of observation, only one instrument of talking. So maybe we should listen and observe four times as much as we speak. Woven into the very fabric of our design and our creation is the fact that we are to be listeners. Good communication involves observing, hearing, listening. To be in a relationship, it involves, yes, talking, but also listening. And the greater of the two is listening. Listening allows us to do many things. Listening allows us to show love. It allows us to show sympathy. Listening allows us to learn and to grow. Listening allows us to understand. Listening allows us to experience. All those things are necessary, and they wouldn't happen unless we are good listeners. And so we must have ears that are directed if we're going to have healthy relationships and communication. We all know what it's like. We all know what it's like to be in a conversation with somebody and feel like you're not being heard, to feel like this person is not listening to you, to feel like they, they're just kind of, you know, watching your mouth move, but they're not really grasping what you're trying to communicate. I was originally going to ask wives to lift their hands and say if they've ever experienced their husbands doing that, but I'm trying to help relationships today, not hurt them, right? What happens when you're speaking and it seems like the person you're speaking to is not listening? How do you feel? (laughs) You feel unvalued? You feel disrespected? On the other hand, if somebody is listening to you, if you can tell they're tuned in to what you're saying, you feel loved. You feel affirmed, you feel encouraged, you feel united with that person. Listening is incredibly important if we're going to be in relationship with others, and God created us to be in relationship with others. So let me ask you, how are you doing with listening in your marriage? How are you doing with listening? Husbands, do you just patently nod as your wife is droning on about whatever she's droning on about? Wives, do you give your husbands an opportunity to process and respond before giving the next line. Children, do you listen to your parents? Parents, do you listen to your children? Employees, do you listen to your employer? Employer, do you listen to your employees? We all have much room to grow in this area, don't we? To be good listeners, to hear people out, to show that they're loved. Let's follow God's design. As great as this general design is, according to God's design in us, to listen more than we talk, God has an even greater purpose for us to be listening. According to our proverb, the wise listen before they speak. Conversely, the fool speaks before he understands. And this really points to the role and responsibility of Christian discipleship, of Christian spiritual growth. Growing as a disciple comes largely from listening. What you're doing right now is listening, hopefully. Growing as a Christian comes from listening, hearing, understanding. It's always good for us to remind ourselves of the great commission that Jesus gave as recorded in Matthew 28. Look at it again. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You can't be a teacher 
unless you've first been taught. You can't be one who goes and makes disciples unless you have been discipled, unless you have been growing. And really, this principle applies to every area of our life. If you know somebody who's particularly gifted or skilled at construction or art or music or writing or speaking or any other type of skill that we have, it no doubt started in them because somebody taught them. They observed someone else. They listened to someone else. They became equipped, and then they are able to teach others also. How much more is this important for we who are disciples of Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the great commission that Christ has commanded us to fulfill? We must be good listeners. So let me ask you a question. What would it have been like for the very first disciples if they would have decided to go and teach before they were fully taught? What would it have been like for them? Well, I can just imagine James and John would have been calling down thunder at every city they went to. Peter would have been going around wielding his sword, lopping off ears here and there. And they would have been jumping all over one another to prove who's the greatest among them. First, they had to be taught and discipled before they could go and teach and disciple others. Are you teachable? Are you willing to listen to people who are further down the road than you are? Are you willing to listen and understand people who have a little more maturity in areas than what you do? Or do you resent being taught? If we can learn how to listen to the wisdom of others, we will then be able to speak wisely to others as well. Wise talk comes from wise listening. But what's the alternative? Proverbs 18, 13 says that if we give an answer before we listen, it is our folly and our shame. I mean, think about the nation of Israel. Set free and delivered from Egyptian captivity, from the slavery and the bondage they were under, by the miraculous power of God's mighty outstretched arm, only they didn't listen to the command of God. And as such, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and that whole generation died before the nation entered the promised land. And even Moses, because he didn't listen carefully to the commands of God, and he struck the rock in Meribah, he also was not able to enter the promised land. Friends, likewise, if we do not listen to the truth of God, to the word of God, we run the risk of great disaster, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. In fact, notice how Solomon put it in the last two verses of the opening chapters. He's introducing the subject of wisdom. He touches on wisdom and our speech. He says, for the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. So may God help us grow in this area of ears that are directed to listen and to learn, to understand and to grow. That's the first thing I want us to see from this collection of Proverbs. Wise words start with ears that are directed. Here's the second thing. To use our words wisely, we must have a mouth that is discerning. The way we speak, we must use discernment with our words. Our mouth must be discerning. Look at Proverbs 16:21. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Wisdom speaks discerningly. It speaks in a way that increases 
persuasiveness. You want to be persuasive in your message? You want to be persuasive with the gospel? Well, you must have a discerning mouth. There's a way of speaking truth that is overly offensive. Have you ever heard someone say something to this effect? What you said was exactly right, but the way you said it was exactly wrong. You heard that kind of a phrase before? The way we talk, we must speak and use our words with a discerning way. It's like all of us who are parents. We've had that two-year-old or that three-year-old, and as two- and three-year-olds are, they have a lack of focus. Does it help the two-year-old or the three-year-old to to berate their lack of focus? Why can't you focus, you 21-month-old child? (laughs) doesn't help at all. Encouraging and loving and fostering. Uh, that does. You know, while I'm talking about parenting, I've got five children. And as most of you have multiple children know, they can come from the same household, raised with the same principles and the same uh, priorities, but they can be completely different. You can have one child that you can give an instruction and a directive to, and it's like, Phew, they don't hear it at all. And unless you get right in their face and let them know, hey, listen, this is what I said, they won't respond. You can have another child, you say a small, harsh word to them, it crushes their spirit, right? We've got to be discerning on how we talk and what we say. It's not just what you say, but how you say it. This recalls to mind Paul's instruction in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. He says this, and we urge you brothers. Notice the difference in the way we speak. Admonish the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. What would happen if you admonished the faint-hearted? You'd crush them. What happens if you would encourage those who are idle in their faith? Well, you're giving approval to sin. (laughs) We've got to be discerning in how we speak and what we say, wisely speaking. And discernment includes knowing how much to say or how much not to say. In the illustration I gave at the beginning with Premier Suzuki, that was not discerning. That was not using a mouth that had discernment. He should have spoken some more clarifying words to the reporters in Tokyo. On the other hand, anybody who's in the public sector knows the more words you use, the more you've given people a rope to hang you with. I have a general policy, this is an aside, If a reporter asks me for an interview, I will only agree to a live interview. I don't want my words edited or cut up to mean something that I don't mean. As another book of wisdom says in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3.7, also written by Solomon, he says this, there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. There's a time to wax eloquent and there's a time when one sentence will do. There's a time when we should rebuke and there's a time when we should encourage. In fact, look at chapter 26 of Proverbs. Uh, these two Proverbs back-to-back, verses 4 and 5, on the initial read, seem contradictory. Notice what Solomon writes. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Uh, which is it, Solomon? Are we not supposed to answer a fool, or are we supposed to answer a fool? Well, these two Proverbs, side by side here, really, verse 
4 is talking about the way in which you answer, and verse 5 is talking about the why you answer. We don't answer a fool the way a fool speaks. A fool speaks aggressively. A fool speaks with profanity. A fool speaks with blasphemy. And so we don't use language just to say, oh, I'm trying to connect with this person, so I'm going to use the same kind of language this person's using. No, that's foolishness. We don't answer a fool according to his folly the same way he speaks because you'll be a fool yourself. However, we do answer the fool according to his folly. Why? Because he'll see himself wise in his own eyes. He'll think, so I got it all figured out. I know what's up. I know the, the, the jig. Here it is. Verse 5 tells us that we do answer a fool, but we don't answer it in the same foolish way. One of our great presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, used to say this when facing particularly another military power. He said, speak softly and carry a big stick, right? So we use our words with discernment in how we speak. Husbands, this is true with our wives as well. Use discernment in how you speak to your wives. My wife, Amy, and I told her I was going to tell this to you before the sermon, she has two basic adjectives she uses for my stuff, things that I have, and even parts of my anatomy. The words are big and fat. You can laugh, it's okay. If I leave some tools out, would you pick up your big fat hammer? Why's your big fat shoes in the living room? Go pick up your big fat shoes. <laughs> your big fat truck's in the way of my van. Go move your big fat truck. I can't see the TV for your big fat head. <laughs> I got big fat fingers on my big fat hands and my big fat shoes fit my big fat feet, right? So one day I said to her, hey, Amy, what would happen if I ever used those two adjectives for any part of your anatomy? She said, oh, you would die. So she can say big fat about anything of me, but I am not allowed to use big fat for anything on her. That's called, <laughs> that's called discernment, discernment. And I think this is the perfect application of Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, don't say it, men, he is deemed intelligent. Discerning speech must first, we must know to whom we are speaking, and we must know how to speak or even when to speak. Again, considering Premier Suzuki and Mokusatsu, one little word, one little seemingly insignificant word changed the course of history. In fact, notice again Proverbs 11, 11 and 18, 21. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So words are incredibly powerful. Using words wisely means we have ears that are directed, we listen. Using words wisely means we have mouths that are discerning, but here's the third and final thing. Using our words wisely means we have a heart that is discipled. A heart that is discipled. Ultimately, wise words come from a heart that has been transformed and changed by the gospel. Let's look at two different Proverbs here. Proverbs 22.11 says, He who loves purity of heart... And whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. 1720 says, A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into 
calamity. Now, both of these Proverbs, like most of the Proverbs in verse chapters 10 through 29, are parallel Proverbs. There's a parallelism communicated within the two lines of the proverb. In verse 11 of chapter 22, we see that pure hearts is connected to gracious speech. In verse 20 of chapter 17, we see a crooked heart is connected to a dishonest tongue. And so a pure heart produces pure speech. A crooked heart produces crooked speech. Very clear, very simple. In other words, a tree is known by its what? Fruit. Tree is known by its fruit. You know if you have an orange tree, if you have an orange fruit. You know if you have an apple tree, if you have apple fruit. This is exactly what Jesus said, and he connected it to the way we use our tongues and how we use language, our words. Look at Matthew 12, verse 33 and following. Jesus speaking says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. A tree is known by its fruit, by what he says, what she says. Wise words come from a heart that is pure. Unwise, evil Crooked words come from a heart that is crooked. Cursing comes from a cursed heart. It's that simple. Now, we have a major problem here. And here's the problem. We all universally were born with a crooked heart. (laughs) We were all born not with a pure heart, but with a heart that was bent towards evil. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. As most of you know, Romans 3, as you've been Bible students, Paul lists together almost a dozen scriptures from the Old Testament to prove what we would call the doctrine of the total depravity of man. He's trying to prove that all humans are sinful. It's interesting, some of those things that he brings up to give evidence that all human beings are sinful have to do with our speech. Look at Romans Chapter 3, he begins by saying, None is righteous, no, not one. Then verse 13, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Friends, in our natural state, in our default condition as human beings, we are cursed. Our heart is desperately sick. Who can know it? We've been created to give praise to God, We've been created to bless others. We've been created to offer thanksgiving to God, but instead, our throat's an open grave. We have the venom of snakes on our lips. We, our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So here's a huge question. Look at this next slide. How can our hearts be made pure? If we're born with crooked hearts, and we're going to be judged, according to Jesus, by our language, how can our hearts be made pure? And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's one and one only way, the blood of Jesus Christ. Only through the blood of Jesus can our hearts be made pure. 
This is exactly the point of Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Look at what we have through Jesus and through the shedding of his blood. Confidence to go before a holy God. Friend, there's no other way to enter the presence of the creator of the universe, the judge of the universe, than through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's made possible through his death on the cross. That's how you get true hearts. That's how you get pure hearts. So how does one receive this pure heart? How does one experience this transformation? Well, we look to Jesus. We look to his death, that he died for sinners like you and like me. This is the grace gift of salvation, that Christ, who was tempted in every way as we were tempted, never sinned. He never spoke a foul word because he had a pure heart. But he died in our place. To speak grace, we first must know grace. And this grace of a pure heart comes only by Jesus. It is, according to Romans 1.16, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. This is the good news of the gospel. I started off this message with this simple statement, words are powerful. As I thought about it, I thought, why? Why are words so powerful? Why are they so important? I think partly it's the reason our words are so powerful is because we have been created in the image of God. According to Genesis 1:27, every human being has been created in God's image. And have you ever thought about the power of God's word? For one, I'll just give you two examples of the power of God's word. There are many. All that exists was created by God's speech. He spoke the world into existence. The universe came into being because God spoke. Friend, that's power. (laughs) There's power in words, and we are created in the image of God. You know what else we see about the power of the word of God? Not only does the word of God have the power to create, the word of God has the very power to recreate. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 17 says that faith, our ability to believe, to trust in God, to trust in Jesus, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word concerning Christ. So not only is the the word of God power to create all that exists, but friends, the word of God has the power to recreate our dead hearts. The word of God has the power to transform us from darkness to light and from death to life. This is the power the recreative power of the word. And God can use us as his image bearers with his word to speak powerfully, recreatively into the world in which we live. In fact, notice how Paul put it to the church in Ephesus. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to 
Grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Those two, fra- two bookends there of that section, in love. We speak the truth in love so that we build one another up in love. My prayer for us as a family has been this week that we would grow and mature in the way in which we use our words. How we use them in our families, our tone, our language, how we listen, but also in our spiritual family, in this church. Are we listening to each other? Are we speaking to each other? Are we spurring one another on to love and to good deeds? I'll close the message today with a trilogy of Proverbs, which I believe confirm the life-giving power of our words. Look at the screen for these last three Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 19, 12, 19, Truthful lips endure forever. Proverbs 15, 4, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. And finally, Proverbs 15, 4, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Words are powerful. And wise words, wise speaking, come from ears that are directed to listen to others, come from a mouth that discerns what and how and who to speak to, and it comes from a heart that is discipled, that has been purified by the very blood of Jesus. May we go from this place today with righteous lips, eager to build others up to the glory, praise, and the delight of our Savior and King Jesus. And that leads to my last thought. The words we choose to use can yield great blessing or great harm. Choose wisely.